You're listening to the Centre Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message recorded live from our Burgess Hill campus. Amen. So, we're looking at a view from above. And so everyone up there has got a great vantage point this morning. Um, the Tyler's brought us on a bit of a journey as we've gone through some of the, some of the topics. You can catch them online on the podcast. And so if you've never been online to our website, centrechurch.uk forward slash media, and gone on to the podcast and had a listen, there's tons of sermons there that keep you busy for a month. Um, so there we go. And today we're looking at the topic wisdom through foolishness. Wisdom through foolishness. And as you can see at the bottom of the slide, it says it's all upside down. If you can read that, well done. That's awesome. So we're going to be looking at um, a passage in 1 Corinthians verses one, verse, sorry, chapter 1, verses 17 to 31. And you might want to go there. You might want to go there in your Bible if you've got one, and, and we'll kind of reference it and go through it um, today as the service wears on. So I'm going to read it out for us, but it's on the screen as well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 31. And this is Paul talking. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you were in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Boasting in the Lord. Wisdom, foolishness. There's all this kind of stuff going on in this passage. There's actually tons of stuff going on in this passage, and it's fantastic. And hopefully I'll take us through a little bit of it this morning. Now, 
we're going to kind of journey back to the first century. How many of you will I have then? No, not say that. Um, we're going to journey back to the first century, to the, to the kind of Roman culture of the day. First Corinthians, written by Paul in around the 50s AD, and written to a, a kind of a standard Roman town with, with kind of your, your normal Roman demographics. You'd have your sort of your, first, your top um, elite, maybe 3% of your, of your culture, of your population being in your top percent. The majority of people around, they say around about 68% or so, being quite low down, quite poor, quite sort of on, on the breadline, that kind of thing. So we've got this, this Roman culture, we've got this Roman town, and Paul's writing into that situation. And Paul talks about honour and shame. Now, in Roman culture, in the culture of the first century, honour and shame was a big deal. In some cultures today, honour and shame is a big deal. It's your main thing. It's, your, it's the main way that you tell where you are in society, what position you are in society. And we may remember some, um, some situations like this kind of in the New Testament, perhaps when um, Jesus was sitting around and, and they were having a meal with the disciples and the disciples were kind of trying to, trying to vie for position. Who's going to be on your right hand? Who's going to be sitting here? Who's going to be there? That kind of thing. And this is the culture of the day. This is what people were after. They wanted a position of honour, taking that next step of honour. Perhaps when you were having a meal um, in, in Corinth, and we know about the meal in Corinth because there's a big chunk of, of 1 Corinthians that's about this meal in Corinth, you would, you would try and sit in someone else's seat. Say, for example, Tyler's hosting the meal, and Tom's in quite a privileged position, and he gets to sit next to Tyler. Well, Tom is running a bit late, and so I go, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll sit in this seat, slightly closer to Tyler, and I'll be a more honourable person that way. Now, if Tom arrives and I'm sat in his place and he doesn't kind of push me out of it, I've kind of usurped him. I've kind of taken his place, his position of honour in the culture, and I'm, I'm therefore kind of like slightly better off in, in the way that I'm viewed in society. Um, but honour and shame extends to something a bit, a bit deeper. See, there were honourable deaths and there were shameful deaths. Now, in a culture of war, a culture where you bring about peace by defeating all your enemies, who of us know about the, the Roman Empire and how they brought about peace? There's a very bloody peace. Being killed on a cross is a shameful thing. In fact, dying the death of a criminal, dying the death of a rebel against the state is perhaps one of the most shameful things that can happen to you. In a culture where honour comes through war, comes through victory, comes through your place in society, the death of Jesus subverts that. Because, as Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness 
to those who are perishing. See, the message of the cross is foolishness because if you were choosing a Messiah to follow, you wouldn't choose someone who was murdered by the state because that is not someone who's worthy of following. In the culture of the day, that is someone who's been shamed. That is someone who's died a horrendous death. There's no honour in a criminal's death. There's no honour in the death on the cross. There's only shame. So the message of the cross, to bring that to a culture who says, let's, let's just be in the most place, the, the place of the highest honour, the ones who beat down the enemies, the ones who win their victories. Let me tell you about Jesus who was crucified on a cross. That sentence is a place of foolishness. That's a place of foolishness to start. But Paul goes on, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Why is it the power of God? Because Christ defeated death. Christ defeated what the state could throw at him. What the Roman imperial rule could do, he defeated. And you get this, you get this kind of language. If you look throughout the New Testament, you, kind of, you see it in different places. So if you were to go to, to um, Philippians 2, for example, verses 5 to 11, there's this great kind of Christological, um, like almost a Christ hymn, they say. And um, it goes through all this stuff that happened to Jesus and said, says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. God gave him the name that is above every other name. Well, let me tell you about that because the names that were above every other name were given to the Caesar. They were given to the ruler of the day. In fact, there's an emperor called Domitian and he used to sign off his letters, your Lord and your God, Domitian. So to say Jesus is Lord is a subversive act. When we think about the emperor, we think about all the honour of the emperor and we think about the rebel who was killed and we call the rebel Lord. What are we saying about the state? What are we saying about the way of the world? What are we saying about the wisdom of this age in the foolishness of Christ? And so there's kind of an honour and shame thing going on in this wisdom and foolishness dialogue. But I want to take us to look at a couple of words in the Greek, if that's okay. And I'm careful not to try and overstate these because you can do that if you're not careful. So we're going to look at a couple of Greek words. If you can pop the next slide up for me, Giovanni, that would be great. Sophia and Logos. I've got them in English and Greek for any who are bilingual in here today. Um, Sophia and Logos. Now, Sophia is the word wisdom in the Greek, and Logos is the word word. Hope that's not too confusing. And Paul does an interesting thing with these two Greek words. And it's an interesting thing because of the context. So I'm going to kind of, hopefully you stay with me on this, but I'm, I'm going to kind of explain a little bit about wisdom, about Sophia, and how it fits in with Logos and what is going on in the, in the New Testament. We know 
the Logos became flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, we, we read in John's Gospel. But what connection does that have with wisdom? Because Paul says in this passage that Christ, the, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And in verse 30 he says, Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom, become for us Sophia. So what's the connection between the Logos, Christ, and Sophia, the wisdom? Well, in first century thought, this wouldn't have been lost. This wouldn't have been lost at all because wisdom was the creative, personified, pre-incarnate force of God in the universe. If we look at Proverbs, first of all, verses, verse, um, what, chapter 1, sorry, verses 20 to 21. It says, Out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out. At the gate of the city, she makes her speech. Can you see the personified nature of wisdom there in the Old Testament? Personified as as this, this feminine word, she. And then Proverbs 8, there's a bit of a chunkier passage here, but we'll go through it because it's helpful to us. Proverbs 8, verses 22 to 31 says, The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works, before his deeds of old. This is wisdom speaking. I was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning when the world came to be, when there were no watery depths, I was given birth, when there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries, so the waters would not overstep his command. And when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. There's something interesting there when we think in light of Christ, when we think in light of the New Testament. But it doesn't stop there. You see, Jewish people like to write, they like to think. And in the first century, there was, there was kind of a lot of Jewish writings that had drawn together this idea of Sophia and this idea of the Logos. And the two had become very inconnected in writings of, of Philo, for example, and in Greek culture, in Stoic writings, these two words had become connected. Sophia was the female counterpart to the Logos that were joined together in thought. In a sense, the Logos becomes the Sophia of God. The Logos, the Word, became flesh. The wisdom of God, everything that was connected between those two, became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The very creative wisdom of God was created in the flesh to be destroyed by the world. And through that destruction, humanity could be recreated. 
could be restored. There's something profound in the foolishness of the cross when compared with the wisdom of this world, when compared with the wisdom of this day and age. But not only was Jesus wisdom, we look at his life and he was a teacher of wisdom. But he wasn't a teacher of wisdom in the way that we expect wisdom to be taught. Every, every now and then there are people that come along and they teach and they say things and they do things that, that, that go against the status quo, that go against the way that we expect things to do. They subvert what is convention. They flip it on its head and they change it. And Jesus was one of these people. Jesus was the ultimate person who taught subversive wisdom, subversive wisdom that actually was the wisdom of God. See, when the world says, be ambitious, want more, you deserve this, you deserve that, you need to go and get it, you need to be a go-getter, it doesn't matter who you step on, just take that next step, you can have it. Jesus says, whoever loves his life will lose it. When the world says, look after number one, you know, you've just got to put yourself first. In this world, you know, things come at us and you've got to look after number one and, and whoever else is out there, yeah, maybe you can help them, but you've got to sort yourself out first. Put yourself first. Be looking after number one. Jesus said, the first shall be last. Notice in the context where he said, the first shall be last, we take us back to that meal that I mentioned earlier, where people were vying for this position of honour. In a culture that was saying, I, I want to get slightly further ahead, I want to be more, I want to be re more respected, I want to be seen as a higher person in society, Jesus said, hold on a minute, the first shall be last. When Jesus wanted to show people what the kingdom of God looked like, he gave them a meal and he washed their feet. When the world says, you'll get what you deserve. I know what that person's done to me, but don't worry. They'll get what they deserve. Maybe we even spiritualize it. I'm not evangelizing to that person because they'll get what they deserve in the end. I don't know. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. How many of us can say, and I'm not going to ask for hands, that we love our enemies, that we pray for those who persecute us? How many of us read the news, watch the stories, go on social media and see what's happening around the world and go, man, I love those people who are doing that and I need to pray for them. How many of us is that our response? How many of us does that break our heart? Because to the world that seems foolish. To the world that seems like that's not the way to deal with that problem. That's not the way to deal with that situation. But the wisdom of God tells us to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecuted you, to, who persecute you. See, Jesus inaugurated a new system. He brought about a new system, a kingdom system. And I want to ask, do we live as people of a kingdom system? 
Do we live as people who recognize the kingdom of God as that is our place, that is where we fit? We don't fit in society because the way that society is, is this way. And the kingdom is a different way. Do we try and fit God into the world in which we live? Do we try and be in cultural compatibility mode when we need subversion? When we need the wisdom of God, do we, do we say, well, you know, you've got a God-shaped hole inside of you? And do we come, to come at it from that point of view that you've, you've just got this little bit of your, your life that needs God? And if you just put your hand up at the right time, if you just say the right prayer, if you just come to the front at the right seat, perhaps if you just get baptised, that's enough. Because actually, we ought to be a God-shaped whole with a W. The whole of us ought to be God-shaped. Some theologians like to call this being cruciformed, being shaped into the image of the cross, being shaped into everything that God has done for us in Christ. That is the place that we ought to be. Not coming at it from saying, you know, God, you can have the centre of my life. God, you can, be, you can be in the driving seat of my life. It's not my life. It's not my life. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. How many people came back from crucifixion? Not a trick question. Give me an answer. One. One. So the sentence, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. What does that say? Does that say, I'm, I'm still myself, I'm going to take back control, I'm going to wrestle back control, I'm going to, I'm going to you know, put God in the driving seat. It's not my life anymore. I've put that to one side, I've been crucified with Christ been baptized into Christ. Paul says this in verse 30, it's because of him, because of God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. We are in Christ Jesus. That's a profoundly different person that now lives within a profoundly different system. The kingdom of God is a different system to the way that the world works. And the two might be kind of happening side by side at the moment. We may see, we may live in this in-between time where we kind of see there's stuff going on in the world, there's things that are happening in the world, but actually the kingdom of God is outside of that. The kingdom of God is separate from that. See, I think for too long, conventional wisdom in the church has been that we, we kind of live like the world. We kind of do the things that the world does. We've got to stay relevant to people. You know, we've got to say how, we've got to show how people how, how God's going to fit in their lives. So we kind of do the same things. We kind of be the same kind of people. And, but we come to church because we get forgiveness, because we've got grace. So we come to church and we, we, we have this church community stuff going on. For too long, I think we've cared about getting on in this system 
taking that next step, doing the, doing the thing, having, having these ambitions, having these, these ideas of looking after number one. We've kind of gone away from what Jesus has said regarding wisdom, regarding life. When Jesus said, look at, the, look at the lilies in the field, he talks about how God clothes them, how God cares for them, how much more is he going to care for you? Yet we think, actually, you know what? I, I, need, to, I need to have my, my... I need to sort myself out. I need to get myself, you know, whatever it may be, on the housing ladder, or I need to, you know, I need to get myself this... this better car because I'm going to be doing long distances or whatever. I need to be saving up. Oh, I can't actually give my tithe this month. I can't actually give to missions. I can't actually do this. Oh, maybe I can't take this time off to go and do that thing that I feel God's calling me to do. Maybe I can't go over and speak to this person on the street that God's prompting me to say to speak to that person because, you know, they might think I'm a bit funny. They might think I'm a bit weird. And I don't want people to think about me like that because I'm quite well respected in society. And so they might think I'm a bit weird. And they might know someone who works for my business and I don't want them to find out because, you know, so it's probably best if I just forget about it. For too long we've been like that. For too long we've tried to be culturally relevant. Presenting Christ as something that's, that's relevant to where we are as a culture. Have you looked around recently? at society, at culture, at the way things are, at the way the world does things. And you think we can just kind of put Christ in a, in a hole within that and everyone's lives can be the same as they were previously and, and that, that'll just work. We deny the total transformation that comes from being in Christ when we do that. Being in Christ requires new creation, requires transformation, requires that the old has gone and the new has come. I don't know if you'd be able to come back up and help. There's a calling to actively participate in Christ. To be active, to be part of it, to be part of this kingdom of God this new system, this new way of doing things, that's what we're called to be. Again, it's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the one who is the most foolish in society. Now, I don't know how we, can, how we can necessarily take what's there in the first century and kind of transplant it into how we, how we live today and how society works today, because for each one of us, that's going to be a slightly different thing. But what does it mean to boast in the Lord when society tells you this, or society tells you that, or society tells you the other? What does it mean to boast in the Lord, to be countercultural? to live a life that's transformed and transforming others. To be a part of the kingdom system. To be a cruciformed community. To be a cross-shaped community. See, because a view from above tells us that it's all upside down. 
that the way that the world looks is not the way that the kingdom of God looks. The kingdom is profoundly different. There's wisdom in the foolishness of the cross. And for those in Corinth, that made complete and utter sense. Because the cross is the most foolish, crazy thing that you... It makes no sense. It, it just... How? I can almost hear them reading this and going, oh, but it's, it's just so strange. You know, in, in Corinth, they used to pay for these traveling philosophers and these traveling kind of sages and, and these kind of things to come in and to give them the latest wisdom, to give them the latest Sophia. And Paul says, I didn't come with Sophia lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power because the logos of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. There's going to be people around and they're going to hear what you're saying and they're going to reject it. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Listen to this in light of what we've been discussing. Verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, for Sophia. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, Think about the signs, the word signs. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. All sets of people, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom. Christ crucified is the power of God, is the wisdom of God. That's all you need. That's all you need. When the world tells you that you need something else, when you look at the latest adverts, you look at the latest things, you look at the, the jobs pages, whatever it may be, you know. Christ crucified is what we need. I don't want to have a big kind of altar call or, or anything like that but I want to ask you just where you are to stand with me and to say that we preach Christ crucified and to, to symbolically say as we stand together in just a second that Christ crucified is what we need the kingdom system is what we need the way of the cross, being people who are transformed by the renewing of our minds, being people who are transformed by the cross of Christ, who are God-shaped holes. That's what we need to be. And going forward, we need to recognise the wisdom in what the world thinks is foolish. So if that's you, why don't you stand with me this morning? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast at Centre Church. One church, passionately loving God and people, 
in Burgess Hill and Brighton. To get the latest news or for any other information, check out our website at www.centrechurch.uk.